Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman, your host. My guest today is returning, Sean Kelly from Vatic, and we have a case study that he worked on during the pandemic about pricing on streaming events and the dynamic pricing information and the findings from the case study are fairly interesting. And I think that you will be surprised that they go a little bit differently than most of us probably think. Um, and we t- we get into a bunch of other stuff. Uh, before I talk about that, how's everybody holding up? If you need someone to talk to during this pandemic, make sure you email me. Don't go through this thing all by yourself. Hit me up. It's Dave at DaveWakeman.com. I'm happy to uh, email with you, chat on the phone or over the video thing. Um, I think we're probably overdone with video, but I'll do a video if you need. Um, you know, just make sure if you need somebody to talk to, don't go through this alone. All right? Uh, hit me up. Make sure you check out my friends at Booking Protect as your organization works to recover from the pandemic, to relaunch and reinvent itself after what's been almost a year of um, shutdowns and reopenings and reclosings and struggles. Uh, check them out at bookingprotect.com. Um, refund protection could be a very valuable tool in helping give your customers peace of mind, uh, giving them a little bit more certainty with their purchase. Uh, so check them out, bookingprotect.com. Also check out my friends at the We Will Recover Project. That's wewillrecover.live, uh, where there's ideas from all over the world on helping you recover, relaunch, and reinvent your business as well. Uh, stuff from me, stuff from Andrew and Carol at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in the UK, uh, Angela and Joe from the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia, um, Audience View, Stay 22, Booking Protect, all kinds of folks. So check it out, WeRollRecover.live. If you are listening to this here podcast, I would assume that you might like my newsletter. It is called Talking Tickets. It comes out on every uh, every Friday. I'm even going to do one on Christmas and New Year's because I'm dedicated to the cause. Um, also, just because it's uh, having something to do every week helps keep me focused on learning and keeps me focused on understanding what's going on. But it's five stories. Um, I'm talking about really putting a focus on how you can recover, how you can rethink your business, um, how you can generate revenue, how you can do all these things that are going to be necessary coming out of the pandemic. You can get that for free at talkingtickets.substack.com. That's talkingtickets.substack.com. Or you can send me an email. It's davidavewakeman.com and ask me to add you to the list. I'll be happy to do it. There is a bunch of cool stuff that I'm working on to put in there to teach lessons. Uh, This week, I'm running a special survey to help people um, understand what MPS score is and how they can use it um, and how it works. Strangely enough, my MPS score right now from the data I've got back is over 60, which anything over 50 is fantastic. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's great. Um, but make sure you check that out. I also do another one for strategy and marketers that comes out on Sundays. It's called the business of value. And you can get that at businessofvalue.substack.com. The same way I'm working, focusing on recovery, renewal and reinvention and talking tickets. I'm doing the same thing in the the business of value. Uh, I know that entrepreneurship, uh, I think is going to take a turn up next year, looking at the data, um, understanding how to create a strategy, market and sell yourself is going to be a valuable skill. Uh, it was always a valuable skill. It's just going to take on a new level of necessity. So check it out. 
Um, I'll be there. Now back to Sean Kelly. So Sean's been on the podcast before. It was a lot of fun. We talked about dynamic pricing. Uh, Sean emailed me and he said, Dave, I've got this case study uh, with an organization I worked with who we, we were trying to see what's the proper pricing for streaming events during the pandemic. And what was can we figure out from doing a case study and studying the impact of dynamic pricing on pricing and revenue uh, right now? And it was really interesting because I think it, a lot of people have been going to just so I had this back and forth on Twitter. Let me back it up. I had a back and forth on Twitter and I said, hey, well, most of the time pricing decisions are made by licking your finger and sticking it in the air to see which way the wind blows. That's sort of the history of pricing. Uh, most of the time pricing is difficult and not done very sophisticated in a, or in a very sophisticated manner. Uh, so dynamic pricing is appealing to me. And there's a bunch of pricing models that I've been learning about that, you know, try to add a little bit more uh, consumer research, a little bit of understanding into what constitutes a good price or a bad price for folks. Um, you know, so Sean came to me and he said, my guess was that people were pricing uh, with no data and no information. They were just making a guess. And this was really interesting because uh, Sean was right. Um, the you know, the pricing was sort of done haphazardly and it wasn't done necessarily with a lot of thought put into it. Uh, there wasn't a lot of data to be fair, but there was a lot that you could learn. And I think the knowledge and the experience that Sean and Vatic and their partners have had dynamic, dynamically pricing streaming events in the pandemic is something that you also could probably use to price dynamically going forward, or at least to think differently about what the pricing will be. Um, one thing I've been trying to highlight to people throughout this is that a lot of it, the customer research that we're doing right now may not necessarily hold up when we're able to start having events and putting events on sale right now. And um, we don't know exactly how long that's going to be. And that could change some of the information we're getting back. So this is a great conversation. We talk about the dynamic pricing. We talk about audience development. We talk about innovation. We talk about uh, marketing. We talk about market orientation. We talk about getting the customer's voice inside the organization. Uh, we talk about a lot. This is a really good conversation. Um, it's really relevant because it's really fresh and it reflects specifically issues that we're all dealing with right now. So here's my conversation with Sean Kelly from Vatic on the Business of Fun. I want to welcome a very highly anticipated guest to the Business of Fun podcast back, Sean Kelly from Vatic. What's happening, man? Hey, I am hanging out here in my little house and trying to do the Lord's work as it goes. You and me both. Um, I know because we talked for a while before this thing, so I know exactly um, you're like me hiding out deep, deep, deep. Um, but it's it's cool to talk to you because we actually have something to um, that may be helpful and useful to people to talk about. And one of the challenges of doing the podcast lately has been uh, giving people um, advice and ideas and conversations that aren't just like filling their ear holes with nothing but bogus BS. And that's streaming prices. Um, is that right? Or am I making stuff up? Am I making a promise I can't keep? Nope. That is absolutely what we're going to talk about. Uh, Vatic just completed a in-depth study of pricing for streaming content. And we were really surprised with the results. 
And we want to get that information out to folks because it can help them with their decision making as we see lockdown continue, quarantining continue, and they more and more, I think, are having to look at how do we deliver our content and then what, you know, if we're not going to make it for free, which some organizations are choosing to do because they have major donors to do that, if they're going to charge for it, then what should we be charging? And there's a lot of opinions out there about what folks should be charging, but there's not a lot of great data. Oh, but you have data and that's going to be awesome. Um, so let me ask you this. I'm going to start out with a very uh, not at all provocative question to get this started because you know, <laughs> I disappoint people. I give them exactly what they want. I'm, so my guess is that if somebody's charging for a streaming thing, they can't charge more than $10. Or actually, I take that back. Netflix raised their price to $13 a month. I can't charge more than $13. I'm right. Yes. Wow, my blood pressure just went through the roof. So there are a number of folks in the arts and culture sector who are saying things like that. Uh, and from a, from, you know, logically, I, I can understand why they would say that. But here's the problem, and I'm going to give you an analogy to help explain it, right? Netflix is very large, right? It is built for the masses. And it is a $6.5 billion a year organization. All of the folks who would listen to this podcast, even at the largest of organizations, would still be considered quite small in comparison to Netflix. So here's the analogy. Let's say you had a restaurant and folks said, well, you can't charge more than $10 because McDonald's charges about $10 for dinner. But, you know, McDonald's is built for the masses, it is very large, it's working at scale. But all of the organizations we talk to, they're small and they're artisanal and they're local. They are much more like a farm to table restaurant and it's not appropriate to charge $10 for that. Your patrons will expect to pay more for that very specialized product that they can get from you that they can't get from McDonald's. And this is the hardest thing is to help folks understand what you are delivering does not exist currently out in the broad world other than for the occasional simulcast of uh, Hamilton. Uh, and I think there's one of the prom that's coming. There's a movie of the prom. Other than that, you know, Theater and orchestra and opera have been very constrained, and that's your opportunity right there. Well, okay, so you brought up the word opportunity, and you brought up, um, you described theater as a farm-to-table restaurant as compared to McDonald's. So these are all things that we've never had the opportunity to work on into the podcast before, so like so much winning has already happened right away. Um, but what you did bring up that I want to point to is this idea of value. And I think what the starting point for this thing, it's very important to begin with value because value is what people receive on the other side, right? And one of the challenges in the pricing model before the pandemic, so let forget what we're dealing with now in the, str the streaming uh, idea is that 
you can't look at the value that your customer receives through your eyes. You said you wouldn't steal my line, so I'm going to use my line right now. You are not your customer. And what you're telling me right now is that that continues to be an important aspect of pricing and offering value to your patrons because people are still looking for experiences that are built around the arts, built around opera. Um, it's outside of the scope of most of your work, but like sports and other forms of entertainment. And the value that they're putting on it is different than the value maybe you think that they're putting onto it. And is that right? That's 100% right. And the challenge here is that pricing in the best of times is a polarizing topic, right? You've got folks on one end of the spectrum who say, well, the arts should just be free. And then, you know, you've got Broadway producers, you know, who absolutely will charge as much as they can. And, you know, what I want folks to do is to think about someplace in the middle there where they're not putting their own ideas in front of what their patrons are telling them. And that's where those, these, this data set that we have from this study is so important is because we actually have data to help folks really question the notion of, I can't charge more than $10 or it should be free because these are actual patrons making actual purchases over a significant length of time. And you know, I, I tell I use you know one of my favorite lines is every time a patron buys a ticket from you, they're having a conversation with you. And you know, in traditional marketing, we think, oh well, the patron bought a ticket, and so th- our job is done. You know, let's go have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. But in reality, that conversation that they're having with you is so important because that helps you understand what's actually going on and how you can set pricing strategy for the future. And because streaming and online content is such a big black hole for most of our organizations, it's just an unknown. Having that data, looking at it, is so crucial for their success. And the study you did, right, was over, what, 90 days, and it covered about, what, 125, 130 performances? So it's not like a small sample size. It's a pretty robust sample. It is a very robust sample, and we purposefully set the test to be a longer period of time so that we could get 134 events into it because we wanted to make sure that we got events of all different sizes. So we had some that had very low demand, and we had some that had really outsized demand, And we looked at a bunch of different pricing strategies because, again, we know that for all of these arts organizations or culture or sports, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. They're not going to just be able to say, well, we're charging $10 for everything. Now, they might say that. We think that's the wrong answer for them. But we think that ultimately they're going to end up setting a bunch of different pricing strategies depending on what the content is. You know, there's going to be some free stuff. Probably the same stuff that was free before ought to be free now. Don't think suddenly folks are going to pay if they weren't paying before. And then there's going to be some pay what you will. It's still basically uh, free, but you might get something for it. And then there might be some stuff that has a set price that's low because you want as many people as possible to attend. And then you might have some stuff that has a set price that's high because you're anticipating significant demand for it. 
And then lastly, you're going to have some stuff that ought to be dynamically priced because you're not exactly going to know how things are going to hash out and you're going to want to be able to flex that pricing given what your demand or what we like to talk about is you know, the rate of purchase, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you bring up something interesting, right, which is you're talking about there's all these different things you're measuring for, right? And I know that you're testing price elasticity. Um, and you talk about pay what you will or some low prices, some high prices, some dynamic things. Um, my question is, is if I have um, always priced my tickets dynamically or like I'm comfortable with dynamic pricing, right? Um, or I'm just comf- like I'm comfortable. I'm having a more sophisticated pricing conversation, which from what I know and what I what I've observed and what I've seen is like most of the conversations around pricing aren't that sophisticated um, because most of the time it's like this and nobody can see me lick my finger and stick it in the air. But it's most of the time that's the pricing uh, strategy session. Um, are you doing it based on capacity because you talk about high demand or are you doing it based on something else? So. Uh, Most folks, when they think of dynamic pricing, especially in the arts and sports, right, they think of dynamic pricing as capacity targets. And uh, Vatic has been banging its pot for a couple of years now trying to get across the message that capacity targets aren't doing for you what you think they are. And in an online, they are virtually useless because either you might be doing a kind of very uh, boutique-style Zoom performance, or you might be doing a, a performance or an event that has literally limitless capacity. In both of those scenarios, having a capacity target isn't going to do you any good. But what will do you good is if you're looking at that rate of purchase, that rate of sale, and comparing it to what you've seen thus far, because then you can see when you're overperforming or underperforming and you can make an adjustment to it. And so what was the most surprising thing that you found as far as price elasticity in the study you, that you did? Like, well, you know, give me something that like will blow people's socks off. Cause I know you have the data. Yeah. So I'm going to give you, uh, before I give you the blow your socks off number, I'm going to give you the number that we were, we were kind of expecting, right? Okay. So one of the things that we like to look at uh, at Vatic is we like to look at revenue per performance or revenue per event, you know, and we like to average that out across a lot of events because that gives us a pretty good standard, right? That we can say, well, this is what things look like normally, right? And when we looked at that issue, we had seen that when they went from in-person events to online events, that revenue per event dropped by more than half. And that makes sense, right? They're doing online stuff, right? They're, you know, their pricing strategies changed dramatically. They were doing a lot of pay what you will. Uh, And So then when we went into the test, we're looking at that same number, right? We're looking at that revenue per event, and we're trying to say, well, did we see improvement? And we saw 10% improvement. That's extraordinary. That's double-digit growth, Mm -hmm. right, within a a 90-day period of time. 
And that's real growth. It's, that's, that's not made up because there's so many events, so many different pricing strategies that are happening, but you're able to see that growth. That's what Vatic is always looking for. We're always looking for not just, you know, could you charge more money, but ultimately, did you make more money? And with this, um, the 10% growth, right? Um, and I, I'm hesitant to ask in the before times because I know that most of this stuff is, it, it doesn't work anymore, right? Like the data that we have for pricing and, you know, anything before the pandemic started is probably close to not very valuable right now. Um, but how much of that plays in the different pricing tiers? Because I think one of the, the, the things about not having sophisticated pricing strategies in most cases is that you chunk the prices to, you know, like the, the, the how they're stratified can be kind of clunky. And it, um, I think it like leaves people like revenue on the table, but, but I may be wrong. Is that, does that make sense the way I asked it? Cause I, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a complex question, I think. It is a complex question. And there is again, no simple answer. What we were able to do because they had already been working in a streaming environment for months. So we were able to not just look at, well, how were things going before COVID, but we were also able to look at, well, how were things going during COVID before we started working with them? And so that's where average ticket can be really helpful in this scenario, right? So pre-COVID in person, average ticket was about $21. And that had been a very stable average ticket for them for three years. So, you know, that's a, that's a really reliable number. That's, that's about what that organization does per ticket for an in-person event. Now, after it, though, it dropped to $4.59. Okay. And this exactly gets to your point about... What are you charging for different types of events? And what they had done is they had made a majority of their events pay what you will. And only one out of every four people who was getting a ticket was actually paying anything. And so when you average that out, that's how you end up with $4.59. Now, So that meant the average person that was spending money was not really spending much less than they would normally spend. Well... That's part of what we're going to see later on. I'm not going to let you get me to talk about that just yet. (laughs) But what you definitely saw is that when you have a pay-what-you-will environment, there's going to be about three-quarters of the people who are literally not going to pay you anything. Does that mean that it had no value for them? Not necessarily. But if you and I were offered free iPhones, we might actually take a free iPhone. That doesn't mean the iPhone... Right. My last iPhone cost me like seven hundred dollars. So, you know, there's a big gap there between what people will actually pay versus if you give them an option where they're paying almost nothing or nothing. Will they do that? Yes, they will. Yeah, no, that and that makes sense. It's it's um, I don't even know if it's a conscious decision either. They just sort of like, oh, I want to see this. I want to do this. I would happily pay throw out a random number, $4.59, um, if that was what it was. It's, I still value it because I'm giving it my attention, and I you know, I probably even value it more if I pay for it. So, I mean, it really makes sense. It's just like um, 
I'm sure that you're going to explain it to me in a little bit more depth. It's just recognizing what people value again. It goes back to that that question of you have to look at what you're doing through the eyes of the customer and see where they what their value what the value they're achieving from being a part of your experiences. Well, and in an environment where it's not like you have in-person options, like the only thing you have are electronic options. You know, folks have, you know, hundreds of channels on their TV, and yet the predominant refrain you hear from them is there's nothing to watch. And that's because so much of that material has become commodified. You know, it's just getting churned out, you know. But what these folks are doing is very special. They're literally the only ones who can do it. But they don't, they don't see it, right? They can't see it because they haven't, they haven't experienced this type of environment before. Well, it, so this commodification thing, you know, it obviously hits me because that's like one of my big uh, rants that I'll go on is like, stop treating yourself like a commodity. Um, you know, it is very special. And it goes back to the, the challenge that you had to overcome, I'm guessing, here is like you had to, to spend that time going, this is new for everybody in a lot of cases. Um, any assumptions we have are probably wrong. You can't look at this from your point of view because you think that like the only way to experience this is in person because that's your bias because you work here. You have to. And it's let, because it's the only thing you've ever done before. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and so we have to follow the customer, right? So how, so how do you help people see that? Like, what do you do that like helps people get there? Because this is a, a new thing that like, I, I feel is super, super important that I have not necessarily labeled as such before, but uh, you know, and it's not my idea. It's everybody's idea of being market oriented and letting, you know, looking at the business from the outside in, as opposed to like, from my point of view, which is another way of saying you're not your market. Um, you know, how did you how do you help guide that conversation so you can get them to go, hey, look, we don't know what the value is for the for the customer because this is new for all of us. So let's not bias this by making assumptions that probably aren't right. Yeah, I mean, I used to have this conversation a lot when I was the head of marketing for arts organizations. And I used to say to my staff, I used to say, our job in this organization is to be the voice of the customer. We are literally here to help explain to the organization, this is what patrons think. And there are other people in the organization who are here to tell us, this is what artists think. And this is what donors think. And this is what the board thinks. And all of those voices are important. But our job is to reflect back the customer's voice. And pricing is part of that voice. Mm -hmm. And so when I had started having conversations with the organization we did the study with, you know, I I wanted them to understand that they were already undervaluing a significant portion of their product, and that they had to be willing to take some risks because they needed the data. I said, listen, it may turn out that you were right, that actually pay what you will is the way to go and that you're making as much money as you can make in an online environment. And if that is the case, I will tell you that. There have absolutely been times where Vatic has worked with an organization and we have come back to them and we have said, we may not be the right choice for you because what's going on for you 
is a, you're, you're, you're working on a different thing here than what we can help you with. And that's usually related to size, right? Very small organizations, they just don't have enough demand to generate uh, significant improvement in revenue. And so, you know, we told the organization, we said, listen, you're gonna choose which performances have set prices and which performances are dynamically priced and which performances are pay what you will. And you're gonna choose all of those starting prices and then we're just gonna we're gonna look at all of that because we want to look at all of this holistically. We want to be able to report back to you, given the choices you've made. Here's what the result is from all of that work. And you know they took some things that absolutely normally they would have done pay what you will, and instead you know the starting price was five bucks because I said listen you got to have some stuff at the lower end. Mm-hmm. Because that's part of the mix of product that you had. So we get to the end of the test and we look back at all of those performances, all of those different pricing strategies, and we see this extraordinary 54% improvement in average ticket. So they went from $4.59 to over $7.00 just because they made a few different choices and they had us dynamically pricing mm-hmm. some of those performances and didn't get any complaints during the entire test. No one called them up angry about what was happening. And that's a big change. 54% mm-hmm. is a big change. And, well, let me ask you too, because you know you said three four quarters of the people with the when it was we'll pay you pay whatever you want right um what was the total number of people who engaged with the art you know how much of a different was that was there a lot more people that were participating and taking part when it was pay what you want or did it not change at all uh it did change uh the participation rate lowered a bit but there is always going to be a trade-off between everything's free and now we're charging a bit of money mm-hmm. and there's also some re-education of patrons that's going to happen right if everything's all for the for the most part everything's been free and now suddenly you're starting to charge even very low starting price points like five dollars there's going to be some re-education but the organization was always making those trade-offs they were making them back when they were doing in-person performances uh, because very few of those were pay what you will. Most of those had a set ticket price. Yeah. And some of those had a lot of people and some of those had a smaller level of demand. All of those things are true. They're still true. What that starting price should be is absolutely the same question you would have asked yourself back when you were doing a live performance, which is, well, what do we think this is going to make? Like you would have to set a budget yeah. for it and you would say, okay, well, we think it's going to make $25,000. And so we think the starting price should be X or it's going to make $50,000 and our venue only holds X number of people. So we've got to make it this price because that makes more sense. Otherwise we're just going to sell out of tickets. Now you don't have for the most part, those capacity limits any longer, but you still have that essential question, which is, 
what do we think we're going to make off of it? What do we think the value? I mean, it's literally the value question, right? What do we think this is? What's the value of this for the customers, the patrons who are going to be taking part in it? Now, I have a, well, I have two questions here, and the first one is like you saw, you talked about undervaluing their products, right? And that being a conversation about, hey, look, you gotta stop undervaluing your product. After you did the research and after you did the, you know, understood what was going on, how how much of a problem was undervaluing versus how much of a problem was overvaluing? Uh, or is that even possible? Well. Uh, at, at this point, they're, they're, they're not at a point where there's any overvaluing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't see any overvaluing. There are absolutely times where they felt nervous, right? Because we had dynamically mm-hmm. changed some of the prices, and so those prices were going higher than they had ever thought they could charge for a streaming environment. Now, again, during that period, we didn't see an impact on sales, but that doesn't mean the organization isn't going to feel nervous, Right. About it. You know, those things you you have to go through. You have you have to have the the wherewithal to just say this is part of the learning is that we're going to feel uncomfortable about some of these things. Yes. Right. And I will tell you, I, I pulled a, I, I have one statistic I will use for you today because um, this is how I did my research uh, is on pricing decisions, if you can raise the average ticket price one um, percent, right across the board, it you it typically will come back into about a ten to twelve percent improvement in your revenue. Um, that was a stat I found out when I learned about when I was doing some studying on pricing, and so like small changes in the price often aren't necessarily felt by the customer, but they have huge impacts on your business. And, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. You know, you'll tell me about that in a second. But these things, these pricing decisions um, are super, super important because getting them right can be the difference between success and failure for the organization. And being more sophisticated about them is essential right now. But maybe, you know, you're not going to tell me I'm wrong because that's like your your gig. But I, I want no, to make that point because it's like, you know, the, the sticking your finger in the wind is like st- – too common and like this stuff is like it works it's like magic but you have to just get comfortable using it yes you're not wrong when we go back and we look at clients data and we're looking at average ticket price we don't actually as a as a whole right when we take all of the events in together we don't necessarily see a huge impact on average ticket we do see double digit growth in revenue because for some of those performances, we're charging more when that's what the value is for the patron. And for some of them, maybe we're charging a little bit less because they might have been a little overpriced for that moment. But the thing that has to happen for all of that to occur is that you have to be looking at your, da- your data, you have to be comparing it to what has happened before. And maybe what has happened before looks really different, right? I'll go back to this average ticket, right? In-person events, $20.97 after COVID, right? Online, $4.59. That sounds so dissimilar to one another. And so it's very easy to say, oh, well, then we have to throw out all of the data from the in-person events. Well, no, (laughs) no, please don't throw that data out. 
because it's still important data criteria for you to understand rate. Because the rate, when we compared the rate of sales online versus the rate of sales in person, those curves didn't really change that much. Some of the cycles got shorter because they have shorter sales cycles now than they did back when they were in person. But how the customers buy, and this is one of the foundational principles that Vatic is built on, how your customers buy doesn't actually change that much year over year. It might change in individual situations, but as a whole, it's not changing that much. So you can use those behaviors from the past to help you understand how are things going to work now. Now let me let me ask you this, and you if you don't have a good answer for it, or if I caught you off guard with this one, you let me know because it was just that you were talking about the, some of the sales cycles shifted a little bit, and what I um, my friends at Activity Stream just did a, a a study, and they were talking about and what it, what they found was like things in the near term are selling very well, things in the distance will sell well where they're available. It's stuff in the middle where there's a lot of ambiguity um, that. It, that, that people are struggling to move right now from your from the studies that you've been working on and the people you've been working with now what are you seeing as far as like the sales cycles go is there like some sort of magic number or is there some sort of um, guiding principle or something interesting that you've seen as far as the you know the sales cycle now or has it stayed well, consistent I, with what like you were saying where it doesn't change that much well the behaviors don't change. The sales cycles have shortened because organizations have given shorter sales cycles. Right? Like they've <laughs> been, instead of get, you know, like, and so the data you're going to get back is, well, we shorten the sales cycle, and so now we're seeing that we have more sales that happen late. Well, right, because you shorten mm-hmm. the sales cycle. Yeah. It gets later. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Again, it gets back to confirmation bias. It's literally proving what you already believe to be true, which is now people only buy very late. Well, that's always been true for the world that we work in. The number one complaint I get from an organization is, well, the thing you have to understand about blank, bank, blank arts organization is that our customers always buy really late. And I literally hear that from every organization. And they think that it's specialized to them that somehow, you know, the patrons that live in I'm their a precious snowflake, area Sean. I'm a precious lazy, snowflake. Yes, are lazy. Uh, and it's not. That's just how people buy. And yeah. that hasn't really changed now in an online environment. But if you compress the sales cycle, then yes, it's going to be even more compressed. So let me see, and I know that this is going to be a, a difficult one to really ch- kind of like extrapolate over anything because, again, our data is very limited right now um, to, you know, about what we're really going to be able to see or make based on what's going to happen in the future times. But just in general, you're likely to see that there's a big buying boost early and a big buying boost late, and in the middle there's like no action. <laughs> so so is- what you're saying is that like the behaviors are actually <laughs> – Absolutely the same. They're absolutely the same. You absolutely have early buyers who buy it the day it comes out on sale. I'm an idiot. I don't know why I didn't think of that before. They absolutely buy it the day it comes out on sale because they're excited about whatever this is that's coming up. And then there's 
a period of time in the middle, whether it be weeks or months, mm -hmm. where not much at all is going on because it doesn't feel urgent yeah. for folks. And then, right, a few weeks before the actual date of the event, you start to see sales ramp up rapidly. Yeah, no, that'd be the, I don't know why I, I was looking at the, I, I read the data. I looked at the thing all over and over again and I don't know. I should have, that should have just been obvious, but I guess that's why you always test your assumptions. Um, you know, that's why yes, I'm a contrarian. Because, because that's actually what Vatic does. We just test, we put mm -hmm. prices into market for a client and we say, how are your patrons responding? And then we adjust according to what the patrons tell us. The goal here for all of the organizations that are listening is to Charge what you're going to charge, right? If you mm -hmm. want to charge $5 or $10, right? If you really believe that the net the Netflix false narrative is actually true, then charge $10. But then follow your data and don't just charge $10. Try some other strategies out as well so that you can start to see what happens because I'm going to finally give you uh, the big piece of cake in this data. You know, when we looked at average ticket, again, going to go back to in-person well, let's save that because I have one more question before, before okay, that. Okay, I'm going to save it. That way we can make, like, make it a tease and get people to go all the way to the end. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about re-education, right, before this, before we get to the big, the big slice of pie. Um, how hard is the re-education process? Because this is something that, that I studied on discounting, right? And we were talking, we were joking about in a class I took that the, some of the stuff I wrote about uh, discounts was included in the class and they had no idea I was taking the class. It was great. Um, how hard is this re-education process in your data to get, you know, to reorient a customer? Because like the data that I've had over the years was that like it can take you seven to 10 years to retrain a customer if you've been discounting heavily. And that's where like this whole thing with me and discounts came from is that you're always a discount brand. You know, when you're talking about reeducating consumers about the way you need to price things to make things seem valuable and correct in people's eyes, you know, what does that reeducation process look like? And you know, how long does it take from your data? Well, you know, it starts uh, very much like in your work, Dave, it starts with, just getting the data, right? And being able to separate qualitative data from quantitative data. One of those is actually helpful. You know, lots of folks like to say, oh, well, we put out a survey and we asked people what we should charge and they said we should charge $10. And it's mm -hmm. like, right, but that's not quantitative data. That's qualitative data. If I, in fact, and it's go out useless and ask people, in that regard, if I because... ask people, what should you pay? People are not going to say, <laughs> I should have paid $700 for my iPhone. Like that's, yeah. That's not what people do not self-report accurately. And it's not intentional. That's a very important question or point. It's like when you ask those questions, it's a bad question, but it's not a bad question because they're trying to trick you. They just don't know right. until you put it in front of them. Like they, you they don't just, know that you're willing to pay 25 bucks for the performance until they see that and they go, oh, I have to make that decision. It's a theoretical question until you actually have to pull out your money. Exactly. So the first step is we got to get some good data. And then the second step is you've got to get everyone in the organization to actually accept the data. Because if they reject the data, mm -hmm. if they say, oh, well, that doesn't line up with my personal beliefs, and therefore, I think it's inaccurate, then you've got nowhere to go from there. And those are two big steps. Getting, getting an arts organization to focus on data 
very difficult. Mm-hmm. They're an arts organization. <laughs> They're, you know, they are about gut level intuitive decisions. They're about art, right? Good art isn't based on data. Good marketing strategy and good pricing is all about data. It's I don't, all about data. I don't make a guess. I never guess. I'm a properly trained marketer like you. I don't guess. You know, uh, that was one of the things I learned back when I was a product manager at Starbucks. They were like, listen, Sean, it's great that you have this intuitive belief about something, but you've got to go out and you've got to prove it with data. And then the organization at that time, you know, a $9 billion a year organization, then we have something we can build future strategy on. But we're not just going to do it on a hunch. The problem is for a lot of these smaller organizations, these arts, right, and culture organizations, they are, in fact, basing it on a hunch rather than on data. And I think part of the problem is, and this is a good one, and then we can get we can get to the slice of pie in a second, is that <laughs> the conversation around what data is and isn't and how to use it effectively is so cloudy because there's so many different narratives that go around around oh big data or qualitative and quantitative data that nobody really understands what it is or how to apply it. You know, because we were talking, this was something we were talking about before. And I was like, well, to get a representative sample of your market uh, <laughs> is a very small number of people, right? Like I'm doing a presentation on Thursday and I did the re- a representative sample of the D.C. area where I live of six million, approximately six million people is 386 people. There you go. <laughs> And, and, you know, so like it's not hard to you. You just have to recognize what it is. So from talking to asking 350, 375 people what they want, you can figure out pricing decisions, strategy decisions, segments. You can understand all kinds of stuff. And I, so when you're making a hunch, it's you don't have to be in the dark, I think is what Sean's trying to say. And I'm trying to say it for Sean. Well, and you said this earlier, uh, Dave, you said, you know, that you have a healthy ego. I have a healthy ego. You know, we are, uh, we, we believe the things that we believe because they are science-based, because mm-hmm. they are data-based. Uh, at the same time, I think you would agree with me that both of us are 100% willing to say, I don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. And that was the attitude we came into with this case study is we said, listen, we want to test for this. And we told them, we said, it may be the case that we come out of this and it's not of benefit. We will tell you that, but we want the data set. We want to be mm-hmm. able to see for ourselves because we knew that all of the other studies that were coming out were just reflective of, well, this is what's happening. We charge $10 and, oh, look, the average ticket came out to be $10. It's not, it's not useful. It doesn't tell you what price elasticity is. And so, are we ready for the big piece of cake or pie? Let's do it. At this point, where's my drum roll? So, again, back to in-person events, right? Average ticket, $20.97. And then there was a certain subset of these 134 events that Vatic managed the pricing for. That pricing, that starting price was set by the organization, and it was spread across demand. So... Very low demand performances, very high demand performances, and all the stuff in between. And what we found, the average ticket for those performances, $19.83. So what does this tell us? 
this tells us that actually their average ticket is the same as what it used to be in person. But because they're putting too much of the content free, they're not actually able to achieve that. But people, when they are charged, they actually think it has the same value. And it gets back to this question of behaviors. The behaviors haven't changed. People still value it as much. They can't go to their beautiful building. Okay, they get that. But that doesn't mean the content has lost value. Right. Well, and one thing I don't think, I don't know how it would come up in the data, but maybe you do. And I didn't know that that was going to be the number. I thought it was, that's a really tremendous because that's within really the margin of error. That dollar is within the margin of error. Um, Is that right now people, the data that I've seen for like nonprofit organizations that I've been helping out and working with is that people in a downturn want to support the organizations they support in any way. And so by undervaluing the ticket price, you're undervaluing your relationship with the people that you that love what your, your organization puts on. Does, is, is there anything in the data that highlights that? Or is that just something, you know, that we, we won't be able to test for? Well, I, I think what and if you're... And so that's an anecdotal what I'm telling you now. Right. And you should use it I, because it's the gospel's truth. <laughs> I, think, I think what you are positing there is very likely the case. You know, there are a lot of organizations that are putting out a lot of free content. And they're looking at something that are things that are called vanity metrics. And mm-hmm. this was a topic that I was first introduced uh, by Colleen Dillenschnauter. She is a consultant who works uh, mostly in the culture sector, uh, museums, aquariums, things like that. And she said, you know, don't focus on the metrics that make you or the board feel better. And what are those metrics currently? Those metrics are how many people watched our video for free online, mm-hmm. How many people came to our channel? How many people clicked into the website? You know, all of those are Mm -hmm. metrics. I'm not saying they don't have value, but they are, in fact, vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. They make you feel better about what's going on, but they are not focused on the very number one thing that you need to be paying attention to, which is revenue, because you need to keep your doors open. You need to keep your people employed. You need... Folks, you as an organization need to continue through the pandemic. And if your current strategy is, well, we're just going to take a deep breath and hang on tight and things are going to get back to normal. I'm really concerned that you're going to get back to wherever that point is that you think things should be normal and it will not even remotely be normal. Right. We share that concern is that this period of turmoil is um, not being used as an opportunity for people to reinvent themselves because of this hope that things will go back to normal. And when they get back to normal, normal's not there. And then the, the pain becomes more prolonged and probably even more dangerous. Listen, I get why people don't want to reinvent themselves right now, because what they do is very special, right? Their theaters, their operas, their orchestras, those are really specialized things that literally take decades to create a vibrant, sustainable nonprofit model for. And I get that they don't want to 
try and figure out something else and that everything has been based on in-person performances. I, I understand that. I've got two degrees in theater. Like I'm super overeducated on the topic. I get it. But right now we're talking about a fundamental change in society in the US. And we have been in lockdown too long at this point not for it to have significant impact on the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it had only gone on three months, we might have been able to kind of you know, have a dip and snap back, but there's not gonna be a snap back. And that's not my opinion. That's what economists say. Mm-hmm. And it's also the history of pandemics, right? You, I mean, you don't listen to me, don't listen to Sean, don't listen to the economists. Look at the history of these things. And the longer they go on, the more severe the, the, the overcoming it is and more how more uh, eh, how much more radical the changes in society are you can't recognize them yet no, i don't have any idea what's going to be different because you're in the middle of it right you're still so close to it but i can guarantee you that there's things are going to have changed in a way that we won't recognize until the pandemic is over and i don't know we- what that is because nobody does Right. We all have stories of grandparents or great grandparents who, you know, saved all the rubber bands in a drawer because they grew up during the Depression era. And it fundamentally changed how they look at the world, Mm -hmm. how they look at waste, how they look at recycling, you know, how they look at thrift. And that is what's going to happen for the population at large. They're going to look at these things differently. We don't know what that result is is going to be. I do know, I can absolutely say this for a fact, they're not going to stop loving the arts. They're not going to want to start, stop participating in the arts. But that participation is going to have some changes. And we have to start the process of making sure that we're accommodating that future. Right. And I'll put it like this, like before in the before times, which is like now my joke uh, when I call it, talk about this um, in November of 2019, um, a simpler time, uh, Angela Higgins and Joe Michelle asked me to come give the opening talk at their con- conference. They started the first ever voice they were going to hear was going to be mine, which is still frightening to me later. But they wanted me to talk about change and the way I talked about change now or then seems really like um, revolutionary now because I kind of nailed this this point in time and I didn't know it at the moment because who knew? And I said, look, it doesn't take courage to change because change is coming no matter what happens, right? The world is always changing, you know, and I had some stats like, oh, you know, in the 60 minutes that I'm going to be on stage talking to you, this all these stats like this many people are going to die, Donald Trump's going to say this many stupid things, you know, all these like cracked a couple jokes, whatever. <laughs> But it's more true now than ever, right? Change is coming no matter what. The challenge for everybody who's listening to us talk right now is to embrace what change is going to look like and to use the change that's coming no matter what to strengthen your organization and strengthen what you do so that like whatever the future looks like, you're able to deal with it and take advantage of it because things are going to be different because they were always going to be different. The pandemic doesn't change that. The pandemic just makes it different than it was going to be before. 
And your job, in, no matter what organization it is, is to always be flexible and adaptable. And I think a lot of organizations have struggled with that, and they continue to struggle with that. And that's going to be the most dangerous thing is if you become static and sclere- scleretic, right? You have to be nimble. You have to be flexible. You have to understand that, like, it doesn't matter if people want to experience art differently. They still want to experience art, and that's amazing opportunity for me, right? It doesn't matter if people want to experience sports differently. They still want to experience sports. How do I do that, right? And that becomes back to that market orientation thing that we've been talking about throughout the day, which is seeing what we do through the eyes of our customer. And the way you so elegantly put it is bringing the voice of the customer inside the organization because that's the job of marketing. And that's the pricing conversation is so important and it's so valuable and it's so um, it is a conversation because people tell you stuff if you're willing to listen. Exactly. And that those conversations are in your data, right? That's why we want people to test and test and test because that's how they learn more. They say, okay, well, we've only ever charged $10 before. Now we're going to charge $15 for this thing because we think it's going to be really exciting or $30 or $45. I mean, there are arts organizations right now that are doing online streaming and charging $95 for a ticket for the household and they're selling out. So, There is a lot more variance out there. We saw variance in our study to go from 459 to 1983 for for performances that are being dynamically priced. That is a 4x gap in price elasticity. We never see that at Vatic. We never see that type of price elasticity. But it really gets back to this, how much of a black hole we're in right now, how much is happening. It's not that stuff doesn't happen inside of a black hole, but we can't see it Yeah, because it's a black hole. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. We have, And again, this idea of market orientation and being connected to your, your market, it's important no matter when. It's more important now because any assumption you're making is wrong. I can say that with absolute certainty because we just don't have any idea what people are really doing or thinking or feeling. Because even if people are talking to you and telling you things or engaging with you, they're probably not being 100% honest or they're not 100% certain how to react or what to feel right now. So any guesses and assumptions are basically useless most of the time they're absolutely dangerous right now and you should you you have to use the data you have to be guided by what people do not what they say or not what you feel right there's room for your gut especially but especially not now feel because (laughs) the biggest hindrance is those things that cause us to go into fight or flight that's literally what this entire pandemic crisis is is an example of fight or flight And it can cause an organization to go into a mode where they literally flee from their customers, mm-hmm. right? If they're not producing something right now because they think that their art form is tied to a building, you are a theater, you are an opera company, you are not, you are a performing arts center, you are not a building. You don't have to actually have a building to produce art. You could have done your work, and some organizations do, in a parking lot. I was just going to use the parking lot. In Rhode Island, they put on a performance in a parking lot. It was amazing. Right. (laughs) 
you don't have to have the building and you know you don't. But you're you afraid know. not to have the building. But it's you're an excuse afraid. not to take action. You're afraid and your board is afraid and your artists are afraid. I get all of that. But the reality is, you know, if you were a major arts organization and your building burned down, you would you would not stop being a major arts organization. You would immediately start reaching out and start trying to find other venues that you could put on your art in. This isn't any different. It's just it's not about finding a brick and mortar venue. It's about finding an electronic venue. And reframe it this way, right? Think about all the people who have never had the opportunity to experience the art that you produce, who can now experience it because you're not just in the building. There was one organization that produced some statistics on their online streaming. This isn't from our study. This is from somebody else. And they said that 75% of their online buyers were new to file, had literally never purchased a ticket, 75%. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary number and really speaks to your point about how any efforts you make right now actually only pay dividends later because you get to hold on to all of those people who've experienced you for the first time. I'm a, you know, an OG in this thing about using these tools and technologies to expand your market because I see it done so well in certain places. Like um, I've been a longtime fan of what the Melbourne Red Devils in the Australian Football League do with their membership program, right? Think about it like this. If they can do it, an arts organization can do it, right? Just think about different ways that you can create value for people now. And I bet you the answer is surprising, right? I, I mean, I, I don't bet you. I know. I, I bet my I bet every my entire reputation that if we sat down with a virtual whiteboard uh, and we could come up with ways that you can deliver new value to people that would that you have never done before within an hour, <laughs> any organization right. in the world, I'll, we'll do it for free just to prove right. the point. We would absolutely do it for free. Please invite me to to whoever calls yeah. you up to do that. The first three people we Sean, that li- are listening to this, Sean and I will do a free virtual whiteboard workshop with you and your organization yes. to come we up with places. Will. Well, we screw absolutely it. will. It's because the pandemic in Christmas time, baby. <laughs> because the organizations that are being successful right now, a lot of them are having to take a very significant sidestep to what their art normally looks like. Mm-hmm. And that's very hard for artists to say, our art normally looks like this. And now, because this is the venue we have, we have this electronic venue. Now our art needs to look like that. Will it look like that forever? No, it's okay not to be right. It's okay not to make the right choice. Mm -hmm. But you want to be able to learn from it so you can make a better choice the next time. Right. It's not okay not to try is what, how I would put it. It's okay to be wrong. It's, it's not okay to give up. That's the Stockdale paradox from the good to great, which is that like, we know this is going to end. We know it's going to suck, but that doesn't give you the permission to quit. You have to keep going. And that's what I would tell everybody. Sean, where can people find you? Because now we've been going for like two hours, even though this podcast is only 56 minutes. We've been going for like the whole afternoon here. Hey, if, if you if you want to avail yourself of, of this free whiteboard opportunity or you just want to talk to me, you know what? 
send me an email, seank at vatic.tech. That's S-E-A-N-K at V-A-T-I-C dot T-E-C-H. Send me an email. I'd love to chat with you. I like just talking about this stuff. And I, I have real empathy for the constraints that organizations are in right now. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, I mean, that's why I make the offer and, you know, I put you on the spot by making the offer with you. Um, but it's like, yeah, you, you didn't know, actually talk about that before the No, podcast. we didn't. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I want to see people come out of this as safely and securely as possible. Um, and, and don't waste a good crisis, right? Like, you know, it's, um, you know, use this as an opportunity to take some risks and take some chances. And, you know, the, the stuff that you work on is, is great, right? It's, um, there, there's two really, really like good dynamic pricing people. And you're, you know, you're at the top of my list of people that I, I go to on this stuff. So, um, it's fascinating. Um, the pricing is like such an incredible lever to, you know, for your organization. So if you're not really like thinking through in a sophisticated manner, pricing, um, you really should, because it's like really, it can be a a missed opportunity because you can really like make bad assumptions and the data really turns up pretty quickly. And it's usually very surprising as the case today, when you pretty much almost got the same money for virtual tickets as you would get for in-person events. And that's like really, really awesome because I bet you nobody else would think that could happen. I didn't think it could happen. I never, thought in a million years we would see that result. And we had purposefully put performances into the mix of what we were managing to try and guard against, well, they only gave us blockbusters. So, of course, we ended up with this phenomenal result. I mean, you know, one of, one of, the, one of the events only had like 12 people who came to it. But, you know, that's, that's what we wanted. We wanted things that had a wide variance of demand. Well, Sean, thank you so much for doing the podcast and sharing the stuff with us. I think um, I learned something, so I don't know if everybody else did, but that's fine. I learned, so that's good. Uh, it was, as always, an extraordinary pleasure. I look forward to possibly doing one of these whiteboards with an organization. I think that would be so much fun. Uh, and I hope everyone is staying safe and following social distancing and masking guidelines because that is a very important part of how we're all going to get through this. That's right. Be, be Everybody be safe and take care of yourselves. Absolutely. Okay, let me know what you thought about my conversation with Sean Kelly by sending me an email. It is my name, dave at davewakeman.com. Uh, check out my website. It's davewakeman.com. It's been going over through a little renovation over the last couple months uh, to clean it up, make it a little more fancy, make it a little more uh, uh, eye-friendly, you know, all those. Make sure you connect with me on the social medias. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at David Wakeman. The why I don't have at Dave Wakeman is a long story, but the guy hasn't tweeted since 2010. So if you can get me that Twitter handle, get it for me, please. Thank you so much. Uh, make sure you connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm trying to do a little bit more on the LinkedIn. Uh, check out my newsletters. There's two of them. The one on Friday is called Talking Tickets. It's at talkingtickets.substack.com, and it is five stories from the week's of, week of tickets uh, focused around analysis and learning and action items to help you recover, reinvent, and reimagine your business coming out of the pandemic. On Sundays, I do a little thing called Business of Value, and that's about marketing and strategy. Again, more for the next foreseeable future about recovery, 
reinvention, rethinking, relaunching your business. You can get that at businessofvalue.substack.com. Make sure you check out my partners, uh, Booking Protect, good, good friends of mine, uh, www.bookingprotect.com. As you and your organization think through ways to recover from the pandemic, refund protection may be an incredibly valuable piece of the puzzle of giving people peace of mind, um, certainty in their purchases, uh, and just making it a little bit easier for people to uh, buy tickets, especially when things are still going to be uncertain for the next several months at a minimum. Uh, check them out at bookingprotect.com. Make sure you check out my friends at ActivityStream, uh, activitystream.com. They have put together a really great resource for people in live entertainment at the We Will Recover Project, which you can find at wewillrecover.live. Uh, there's experts and people like me from all over the world. Uh, the experts, everybody else, me, I'm just me. Um, but check it out, wewillrecover.live. There's some great stuff from the folks at Stay22, um, Andrew and Carol at the Ticketing Professionals Conference uh, in Birmingham, uh, Joe and Angela from the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia, in ticks, uh, and many, many more. Okay, so check it out, wewillrecover.live. Like I said at the start of the podcast, if you're struggling, it's the holidays, if you just are like, holy hell, what's the, what in the world is going on, send me an email. It's daviddavewakeman.com if you need to talk to somebody. We can text, we can talk, we can WhatsApp, we can do whatever, right? Uh, I just don't want you to feel like you're going through this thing alone. Um, I want, want you to know that at a minimum I'm here for you. So hit me up, daviddavewakeman.com, uh, you know, even if you just want to say hello. I love to get your notes. I love to hear from people. So uh, David, DaveWakeman.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here. Um, today is December 14th while I post this thing up. Uh, it's been a tough year for, for everybody. But hey, look, I'm, I'm glad that you're still hopefully healthy and safe. Um, you know, and I'm thank you, thankful for you still listening. So take it easy. And I will talk to you again soon. <laughs>